Okay, we're just about ready to go. I want to be sensitive to people's uh, time, and it's getting to be lunch hour, and we didn't provide it, so um, we're going to do some, some q and I got a, a bunch of questions here. Um, I just wanted to mention to everybody, some people know this, maybe everybody does, Dr. Renan's been working for several years on some books, and one of them came out last year. It is a historical theological commentary on the first London Confession. Um, I highly recommend that. And then another one is coming out. We're hoping by the first of the year, it come, it, both of these come out through Founders Press. But Founders Press is located in Cape Coral, Florida, which is uh, right next to Fort Myers, which is where... Hurricane Ian hit, and so they're out of commission right now, founders. But the printer is a, a local printer? I don't know. I, somebody thinks it's a local printer, so it might be a delay. We, we just don't know. Yeah. Um, and that will be like 600 pages, and some of you have Dr. Waldron's. It's going to be different than Dr. Waldron's, um, and you need to get it. It's going to be outstanding. I already have a friend who has a... Oops, pre-pub copy that he shouldn't have, but he does. No, he, he can have it. And he calls it a game changer. He's revi He has his own notes for years. He's been teaching a new members class at his church using his notes on the confession. He's revising his notes because he's learning so much from that. And then you're going to have a third volume, and I don't even know what the third volume is. I, I do kind of, but I don't want to mess it up. So why don't you tell us about the third volume? Yeah, volume three hopefully will be on the Baptist Catechism. There are 18 questions in our catechism that differ from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. So the goal is to really only deal with those 18 questions. I think that um, there are three, maybe four, really excellent expositions of the Shorter Catechism. Thomas Vincent, Thomas Watson, John Flavel. And um, Benjamin Bedome was a Baptist and was around 1760 or 1770. And so I, I don't think that we need a, another exposition of those questions that are handled so well by Vincent and Watson and others. But the 18 that are different in our own uh, catechism, uh, I think, are worthy of some examination. So when they first published... This uh, Baptist Catechism that's in the volume here, its title was A Brief Instruction in the Principles of Christian Religion. So my working title is A Very Brief Instruction in the Principles of Christian Religion. Can I keep it very brief? I hope so. That'll, that'll sell. That'll sell. Okay, so a little um, fuzziness in my own thinking about the difference, if there is, between Collins' Catechism and Keech's Catechism and has the Colin, if, it, if there is a difference, um, has that been published? And if it has, you know, so anyway. Yeah, I don't really know what you mean. Somebody asked a question about a Collins catechism, because you said Collins one time. Yes, yes. Yeah, the, the version that we have in this, published by Solid Ground, the 1695 version, is William Collins. It's not Keech. Okay. Now, more popularly, there are versions of this with some additions, some subtractions, very similar. That's 
what is often called the Keech's Catechism. And you will find, if you look on the internet, that the numbering often differs because somebody's added one in or somebody's dropped one out. And that's, you know, how much is Keech involved in it? He had to have been involved in some way later on. But I suspect, as Keech did frequently, he adapted it for his own congregation. Okay. Now distinguish between Hercules Collins and William Collins catechisms. Okay. Hercules Collins was a mighty man of God. Um, Hercules Orthodox Catechism is the Heidelberg Catechism baptized with some additions. Now, my son Sam would tell you, and I think that Sam's right on target here, Hercules, Orthodox, Hercules Collins Orthodox Catechism was not widely accepted among the churches. And the reason for that is that there, were, there are some controversial matters that Hercules Collins introduced into his baptized version of Heidelberg. And the two things are the laying on of hands, uh, which was a practice that was used for welcoming members into churches. And the other is the propriety of singing hymns, which was a hugely controversial issue. And Collins, Hercules Collins advocated it in his version of the Heidelberg. And so all the churches that did not advocate it wouldn't use the, the Orthodox Catechism. So it didn't have the reception that something like uh, William Collins' version of the Shorter Catechism would have because Collins doesn't have those controversial issues in his catechism. Thank you. Would a better tattoo for Reformed Baptists be katakete? across the knuckles, as sailors do, as a means of recovering the word catechism. I'm not getting one. I think he would say, that's an issue of Christian liberty. It is. We wish you would say, no. No, we don't need to talk about it, so okay. That's a great question. Uh, okay, we have a lot of we have some we have some good ones. The experience, very briefly, like thirty to sixty seconds of the particular Baptist churches in England from about sixteen sixty two to sixteen eighty eight or eighty nine. What was what would it be like to be a member of a particular Baptist? Church? Yeah. Okay. Um, if you were a member of one of the churches, it, oftentimes it depended on where you lived. You, you know, that illustration before about California versus Texas is helpful here. If you lived in a, in a place where the civil magistrate didn't care, turned the other way, you probably didn't have much of difficulty of, of worshiping. And there were places like that. But there were also places where, well, two other examples. In, in some places, the civil magistrate would do everything that he can to break up your worship and arrest you. And so there are records of churches meeting out in woodlands, down in hollows. Um, they, they stopped singing in many cases in worship because that would give away a large group of people who were met together. There's a, a story of in one church that the, they decided to meet upstairs wherever they were, and the ladies would sit on the stairs 
so that when the magistrate came, the ladies could take their time in getting up from the stairs, which would allow the minister, they were, they were there looking really for the minister, it would allow the, the preacher to go out the back way or, or you know, find some other way of absenting himself. So there, there were difficulties. In Bristol, uh, especially out in the West Country in Bristol, that was one of the areas where persecution was the worst. Um, there were four non-conforming congregations, that is, congregations that were not part of the Church of England. They were illegal. And uh, they, all of their ministers were put in jail, all four of them. These weren't necessarily particular Baptists. Well, there were four of them. Two were particular Baptists. One was Congregational and one was Presbyterian. And so the people of those churches tried to find ways to meet together. They could get, they probably could get one preacher, so they thought it was better to meet together and have one preacher than have four groups without any preachers. Um, that that would, would have been a difficult place to live. Of course, a, a sort of an in-between was someone like John Bunyan, who wasn't actually a particular Baptist, but Bunyan... Uh, was when you hear about him being put in jail, he could he could leave the jail when he wanted to, and his family could visit him. It, it's not like he's behind bars with a big padlock on the cell and he's not released for twelve years. It, it, it was not pleasant. I'm not trying to. What? what? Oh, this changes everything. <laughs> they oh. told me he was in prison. Well, he was. But I was just about to say, he keeps interrupting me, and you know, uh, it, it it wasn't the kind of locked behind bars forever thing that we have to say. Yeah, right. In a jail. Yeah, we're done. <laughs> he was he was one of my heroes. Not anymore. Okay, so. Um, some of the notable statements, uh, notable statements unique to the Second London, aside from, let's say, baptism and ecclesiology. Earlier chapters, maybe I'm thinking of chapter two, because I think that's the m- most notable difference that has very uh, much to say to our own day. Chapter two, right? Yeah. Th- that wasn't a question. You made a statement. What are the notable differences between the Second London and the previous ones in the Westminster family, the Westminster itself, and the Savoy. So our confessions, 1677, there's a lot going on, yeah. you know. Yeah, in, in some ways our confession, uh, I know that this can sound a little boastful, but it is the fruit of the whole Reformation. Hey, Frank, or somebody in the back, could you do me a favor and close the door because the sun is shining right off of a window right at me, and it's blinding me. You have this glow about you. Yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> My wife buys the right soap for me. That's why I have a glow. Um, most of the times when there are changes in our confession of faith, they come from Savoy. Um, so that that statement that uh, I read to you earlier about our comfortable dependence and communion with God comes from Savoy. It's not, not original to the Baptists. Although we did add, and you know, it's interesting, Kevin DeYoung mentioned this the other day very positively. He, he said, you know, there are changes that the Baptists made that are really good. And he mentioned in chapter 2, paragraph 3, where it speaks of the three persons of the Trinity 
uh, each having the whole essence yet the essence undivided. He thought that that was a really wonderful way to, to describe the oneness and yet the threeness of God, each having the whole essence yet the essence undivided. Um, probably the most significant place where there are changes is in chapter 7 of God's covenant, especially the third paragraph. And, you know, twice um, I've had well-known Presbyterians tell me that they like the changes that our confession makes on the, the paragraph, the chapter about the covenants, especially because it is much more comprehensive in the way that it speaks about the history of redemption as that is contained in the Old Testament. And it does so in three words, by farther steps. That summarizes the whole Old Testament. But it does so in such a way that you read that and you say, oh yeah, because they had just talked about Adam and that now they're about to talk to Christ. And it's a reminder to us that the Old Testament is an unfolding of the divine purposes as they move forward to Christ. So 7.3 is a really good and helpful. Also, 8, 9, and 10 of Christ the Mediator are statements about his trifold office or triplex office, prophet, priest, and king, added under the influence of First London, which draw them from William Ames's marrow of sacred theology. So you, you have a better, a more improved statement on Christ as prophet, priest, and king over against Westminster. Those are some that come to mind. You missed the biggest one. I missed the, I'm sorry. I'm a failure. I'll go home now. Subsistences instead oh, of persons. Okay. Explain to us why that really technical term is used in our confession and why it's not used in the others and why that's not necessarily a bad thing in the Westminster Confession, but it's a better thing by the time you get to the toward the end of the century. Okay. Yeah, if you look at chapter two, you'll see that the that our confession doesn't use the word person, it uses the word subsistence. And it uses it in two different senses. At the beginning of the chapter, it uses it to speak of the, um, the, the essence or existence of the divine being. But in the third paragraph, it speaks about the subsistences rather than the persons. And that reflects an awareness of a long, long, long history of discussion in the history of the church over how to characterize in human language that which is really ineffable to speak about the divine. And you, it goes back to even the problem between um, the Greek terms that were used and the Latin terms that were used and how Greek words would have a certain connotation among the Greeks. There was no equivalent Latin term, and so a Latin term was chosen that had some connotations that sometimes could be difficult. For example, the word person. The word person at some points in the history of the use of that word in the Latin language um, specifically meant what it means to us today, an, an individual. Rich is a person. I am a person. Um, and we have individual existence, though we are both humans. We share humanity, but we have different existence. And so the use of the word person at times in the development of Trinitarian uh, terminology seemed to imply that the, the subsistences of the Trinity were separate persons because the word person was used, which had the implication of tritheism, that Christianity is three gods. And if, you know, when you read Richard Muller's 
Dictionary of Latin and Greek Theological Terms, and begin tracing out natori and usia and essentia and persona and subsistentia in all the words. It's fascinating stuff. I mean, it's stuff that will bring me to worship God when I realize, even in our language, how difficult it is to speak about the greatness and the glory and the grandeur of the God of heaven and earth. But Calvin, for example, preferred the term subsistence over the term person because uh, it doesn't carry some of the overtones that that person does. Now, there are twice, there are two times in chapter 8 where the word person is used. Um, the, the second person of the Trinity in 8.2, for example. So our fathers were not rejecting the use of the word person. And when you sing holy, 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 God in three persons, blessed Trinity, don't, don't, you're not at all speaking improperly. I was going to say heretically, but it's not even improper. It is proper. But you have to guard against individuation in the subsistences of the Trinity. So it really is a great, a very careful change that's made. You know, it troubles me. There are a couple of places where people have written about our confession, men who ought to know better. This is what troubles me the most. Who imply that, you know, they weren't really paying attention here in the way that they phrase this. Um, you, know, you know, the question of Adam and Eve and the transmission of sin. And yeah, oh, they couldn't have even believed that themselves. You know, what were they thinking? Blah, blah, blah. And I, I remember hearing that on a podcast, and I, I just wanted to, you know, scream because it's not true. Actually, the changes that were made were very careful and very perceptive and very precise. And the reason that it looks like Adam and Eve are the, uh, the co-federal heads is because there was a, a false doctrine that was going on that, that said that uh, Adam and Eve's sin has no relation to us. We have no relationship to them. Our sin is simply our own. There is no such thing as original sin. And it was important in the middle of the 17th century to demonstrate that we have a physical, genetical tie between ourselves and Adam and Eve, and that's why the language is used. It's not a denial of Romans 5 at all. So that, that will get my ire up when I see people ought to know better. You, know, you remember at, at our SoCal conference, I, I was asked to speak on that. And I stood up and said something like, um, well, this could be answered in 10 minutes, but you've given me the whole time, so I'll take 10 min- uh, the whole time to do that. But if these guys who make these kind of charges would only spend a half an hour doing some study, they could answer their own questions. I wish that they would. Chapter 6 uses the language, our first parents, correct? Yeah. So that was the issue. What does that mean? Is that denial, deny Adamic um, headship, um, federal headship of Adam? So I brought that suggested topic to him, so I actually am the one responsible for you doing that. But at the conference, what he normally does is he kind of does an overview of the chapter we're studying, and then we pick some difficult words or phrases, and he's our first choice to deal with it, because since he's done a lot of study in it. By the way, tomorrow when we sing the doxology, you'll see that we've changed the terminology to subsistences instead of God in three persons. But to add to that, I was at a conference one time with um, dear brother, RTS New Testament guy, loves us, we love him, you know his name, 
everybody has his books. Anyway, I was lecturing on chapter two of the confession with this brother at Vodibachum's former church. It was a Q&A like this, probably about twice as many people as this were, the, were still there for the Q&A. And he's st- sitting here, I'm here, um, Vody's in the middle, and we're talking about differences in the Westminster and, the, and this second London. There's a fly flying around here, by the way. And so, um, Guy, Guy Waters, Dr. Yeah. Guy Waters, okay. You know what? Actually, it was just me and Vody up here. Guy and his wife were sitting there. And I made a statement. I said, there's some terminology, terminological differences in Chapter 2 of the Confession, the Westminster and the, and the Second London. And I, I'm pretty sure Dr. Waters would agree with me. Um, the terminology in the Second London is more precise and in the context in which it was published, it was better that they used the more precise language. He was going like this, okay? And he knew, and we talked about it later, that the more you get toward the middle of the century, the 17th century, the more anti-Trinitarianism starts to rise in the Church of England and then in some of the nonconformists as well. So by the time you get to 1677, people, philosophers, some hymn writers too, were using the term person, uh, divine person equals human person. Human person equals divine person. So person, God, person, creature, we mean the same thing by person. A human person has intellect, a human person has uh, volition, a human person has affection or emotion. Therefore, a divine person is just like that. A human person is an individual instantiation of a given nature or something like that. So what was happening was uh, they're using this term person, creaturely persons, and divine persons, meaning the same thing. And historically, the the word person, when used of a divine person, was used in a way that we scrubbed off all the creatureliness when we projected up to God. And so they stopped doing that. And so when they went back to this more technical term, they didn't invent it. They, they got it from the guys that didn't include it in their own, their confessions, but they included it in their writings. So it's not a new term. It's, they're not clogging religion with new terminology. They're using more precise language to combat something that was going on in their day, including... Socinianism. And the guy you, you're tired of lecturing on... Yeah, Tom. Good old Tom Collier. Thomas Collier, who was a particular Baptist who became a Socinian or a Bidilian. Bidilian. John Biddle... Some of you know John Owen. John Biddle is the Socinian uh, or the anti-Trinitarian that John Owen writes against in volume 12 of his works. And so when you read Nehemiah Cox dealing with the same theological compromises in a different guy, Nehemiah Cox sounds a lot like John Owen pushing back on, on this other guy. So, by the way, if I don't ask your question, please don't take it personal unless your name's Mario. Yes. How can you break the rules? Everybody else. He used to be our deacon. 
with all its revisions, I don't know, three, four revisions? Two. two I mean, because I think you said uh, 44, 46, 50. 50-something. Yeah, 51. And then after 51, they're all the same. Okay. So why is it they write the first London, and why did it transition to a second London instead of a revision? Um, the first London was initially written because Parliament and members of the Westminster Assembly were making demands that the Baptists and other groups give uh, an honest and open declaration of what their faith was. And the, the 1644 edition appears about six weeks after that um, demand that came from Parliament put forth. So it was rapidly done by untrained men, and it's a really a good piece of work. It was revised in 1646, uh, about 14, 16 months after the first edition came out. And it was revised because there were um, critics who saw faults, flaws in it, imprecisions, and uh, there were several of them, some well-known, others not so well-known. And uh, it's really interesting to notice how many times the 46th edition alters things that were criticized in 44. So they're, they're trying hard to... Th their purpose was to uh, demonstrate their own orthodoxy, and they're trying hard to demonstrate that by altering their language to satisfy the critics. 1651 edition is, uh, is a minor revision. But one of the, the realities of the three is that they all, each one was written in a different political circumstance. Okay, In 1644, the first civil war is raging, and it's quite unclear who will win that war. So the section on, let's call it politics, at the back, is king and parliament, king and parliament. In 46, it's very clear that parliament is going to win the civil war, and the, the king will be um, the loser at that point. Now, that's long before the king is executed, three years before, but still, the, the king's going to lose. So the the... Political chapters at the end of the confession are changed better to conform to that kind of a parliamentary in the at the top politics. 1651, the king has been executed. And one of the, the realities of English history between 1649, Charles was executed in January 1649, and his son, Charles II, was restored to the throne in 1660. So you have a period of about 11 years. And it's a, it's a period of political turmoil and uproar because they're floundering around trying to find a system of government that will work. They, they've always had a king. And now suddenly they don't have a king. They don't, they don't have... And, and of course, the king back then had more power than today, though perhaps not the type of power that Henry VIII had 150 years before. So the 1651 edition reflects that th 
other change in political circumstances, most of its revisions are in, again, towards the end of the confession, which deal with how we are to relate to those who are above us, set there by God. And uh, 1651 is fairly early in the turmoil. You still had a, a lot of changes that were to come. That's before the Parliament of the Saints, for example, was tried, which was an attempt to allow the congregational churches, that's, that's a little bit of an overstatement, but allow Christians to appoint the members of parliament. And they, they met that parliament, the Parliament of the Saints, sometimes it's called the Bare Bones Parliament, met for about six months, but it was so incompetent that it had to be dissolved and Cromwell then take, gets more power. You know, Very co complex and unusual situation that they face. But that's largely what's going on in, in the revisions. The critics make, in 44 is criticized, 46 responds to the critics, 51 re reflects a new political circumstance in the kingdom, or now the commonwealth. Why, why make the change? Well, Thomas Collier had actually been sent out by the Devonshire Square Church in 1645, meaning he was sent out while the First London Confession was in vogue, while it was being accepted in the churches. And he would have been identified with that confession. Um, one of the things that I've been able to uncover is how that confession was accepted in churches between 1644, 46, 51, and then 1677. Collier would have been identified with that confession of faith, and they, they, they believed, and, and the First London doesn't address all of the matters that needed to be addressed with Collier's um, defections. It has a fairly limited um, doctrine of God, doctrine of Christ. Um, it, you know, it, it's, it's 50... The number is different, but it's around 52 articles, depending on which uh, edition you're looking at. And, and, but they're short. They're just short paragraphs. So they needed more clarification. They needed better statements. They needed to beef up what they had been before doing. And you could say, there is a sense, I think legitimately you could say, that the Second London Confession is in fact a revision of the First London Confession, because there's a whole lot of the First London 1646 edition that's brought over into Second London. So in that sense, it, it is in fact a revision, though really an expansion um, than more, more so than a revision. Does that answer your question, brother? Yeah, okay. It's like we poked a balloon and all this information came out. Thank you. Okay, two more, and then we'll let, uh, let the folks go. Um, and again, if your question wasn't asked, nothing personal. There were no bad questions, but Mario stole your time, so if you want to get angry at somebody, you can deal with Mario, uh, who used to be a deacon at my church. Have I said that yet? Um, elderocracy? It's elderocracy now. Yeah. Forget our constitution. I'm taking over. Um, if any of you to, would like to meet with me tomorrow for worship, <laughs> we can do that separately. Yeah, okay, separatists. We'll meet in uh, Frank's backyard. Two, and very, very briefly here, um, two questions. One is, why is the chapter on marriage so 
different than the Westminster Confession, and I, and I assume the Savoy. And number two, how do churches utilize the Confession in terms of uh, subscription to it? Are there distinctions between officers and regular members and, and all that stuff? Ask that question a second. Let me do one at a time. Our brothers had too many birthdays, obviously. Okay, if I can remember what the second one was. Yeah. No, it always happens that I get asked two questions and I can't remember what the second one is. Why is the chapter on marriage so different? Ours is very brief. Well, it, 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 it excises the statements on divorce, basically. And the reason for that is that, well, I, 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 let me summarize and say that there are two basic reasons. The first one is that divorce was practically impossible in the 17th century. It required a private act of parliament to end a marriage. So unless you were well-connected and wealthy, divorce was out of the question. But that wasn't the, that's not the main reason. The main reason is that all the way back into the 16th century, so we're talking about 100 years, Protestant theologians recognized that marriage was something that belonged to the state, not to the church. They were two kingdoms men. And they recognized that marriage was something that belonged to the common covenant, it was a creation ordinance, and it was something that belonged to the state. And so while the church could be involved in defining what a God-honoring marriage was, the church had no jurisdiction to grant or recognize divorces. And of course, that goes back to King Henry VIII. You remember the story, six wives, divorced, beheaded, died, divorced, beheaded, survived. That's how you remember the fate of each of the six wives. Ouch. Yeah. Can you uh, repeat that, please? Divorced, beheaded, died, divorced, beheaded, survived. And they weren't actually divorced, they were annulled. But it doesn't work so well to say annulled, beheaded, died. It doesn't rhyme quite so well, right. Yeah. But, you know, King Henry VIII was seeking for an annulment of his marriage to Catherine of Aragon so that he might have an heir. Now, there was some wandering eyes for Anne Boleyn that was involved as well. But it was the Roman Church that had to grant that annulment. Uh, and when the Roman Church refused to grant the annulment, there's, that's a fascinating story with, with yeah, well... Um, and Henry takes control of the Church of England for himself, you, you have the question, what right does the church have to be involved in divorces? So there's a whole lot of background, but it was, it was you know, the, the Presbyterians, the Westminster Assembly was called to reform the Church of England. And it was not a traditional church synod because it was called by order of parliament. And so it was subject to the state. To use the technical term, it was actually an Erastian right. synod, not a church synod. And uh, the, the hope of the Presbyterians was that there would be a union of church and state that would be demonstrated by the full reformation of the Church of England. They were bitterly disappointed in 1662 when they were finally forced out of the Church of England. Even up to that point, they hoped that they would be able to uh, reform the church according to their polity and make it a national church, which did mean for them in the Westminster Confession of Faith that divorce was a relevant issue. But once 
uh, it's clear that the Presbyterians are not going to gain power, that divorce no longer is something that's within the jurisdiction of the church. It belongs fully to the state. And pardon me, as the Congregationalists said, and the Baptists followed the Congregationalists, um, matters of divorce had no place in a confession of faith. So they were removed. Your second question was, I don't remember. Um, different uh, forms of subscription, how churches might view that, and uh, are there differences between what officers must subscribe and, and how, yeah. and just regular members? Yeah, um, no, I don't, I don't see any evidence at all of differences. The churches subscribed which meant that those who were members of the church all were committed to the, to the confession of faith. And how, what, were, what was their, how did they view the, the subscription uh, to the church? Let me, let me give you a story. Benjamin Keach published a book in which he argued that the early churches from the 1640s did not have a doctrine of ministerial support. Now, this was in the midst of a big controversy over hymn singing. But he said that, and it was a real blunder. Because in, in the First London Confession of Faith, there's a paragraph that argues for the support of ministers by the churches. That's another area, Mario, where there was a change in 51, because... By the time they get to 1651, they're actually sometimes seeking support from the state for the ministers of the church. You know, this, this question of the relationship between Baptists and the state is much more complex than typically is told. And the, there were some Baptists who were sent out in the 1650s to plant churches by parliament. They were supported by parliament. Um, so it's much more complex. But anyways, Keach really blundered because he said that the ancient churches from the 1640s, he was born in 1640, so he's a little boy then. He didn't know. The First London Confession had quite plainly said that churches owe support to ministers. He said they didn't, and he was called on that. And the language that was used to um, call his bluff was the language of hypocrisy. It was said that if, if one were to, and they use the word profess rather than confess, but they mean the same thing. If one were to profess something and not do it, they would be the grossest sort of hypocrites mankind could know. <laughs> the grossest sort of hypocrites, that's the exact language that's used. So to them, if you confess something and you are confessing it, this is one of the reasons why I emphasize these, these words in the epistle about before God, angels, and men. That, that's, that's calling in the heavenly court as a witness to say, we mean what we say. The grossest sort of hypocrites. Keach had to back down, and he did publish and acknowledge his fault he said he had never seen the First London Confession of Faith, um, and that's why he, he made the blunder. There's probably more going on, and Keach sometimes could be a hothead. Uh, he's, he's not my favorite guy, 
although I do quote from him extensively, and he can be very useful. Genius, though. Yeah, he was he was a genius. So, you know, that's an evidence writing in about 1692 or 1693, late in the 17th century, of how those men viewed their commitment to their confession of faith. If you say it, you better believe it and practice it. If you don't, you're a hypocrite. Okay, we're going to try to shut things down here in a minute. Um, it would be fascinating to go to lunch and then come back and just start asking them questions about the, the culture of the day um, back in the 17th century, how uh, rotten the teeth were and how bad the body odor would have been in this room right now, but we have stuff to cover it. Uh, how many children, on average... Couples lost before one years of age. How many, uh, how far the average citizen in, in and around London traveled from the home in which they were born? What's the circle? Five miles, 10 miles, something like that? You're confusing things. Okay. Well, anyway, it would be fascinating to do that, but eating first and then coming back and hearing that gross stuff would probably not be good for us. So, we're just going to let you go eat and not do that. But thank you very much. Um, as you can see, this is a wealth of information here. And uh, part of me was sitting back there going, you know what? We should have just done four sessions on Q&A. But maybe next year we can do that or something like that. So I want to pray, and then we'll dismiss everybody. Thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to sit, to listen, to learn, to be humbled. Um, we thank you for such a, a rich legacy that the confessional reformed strand of Christianity has going back farther than the 17th century. It just expressed itself at that time. It goes all the way back to the scriptures of the Old and New Testament, where our um, ultimate standard of authority lies in God through his word. We pray that you'd Give us all safe journeys home and a delightful, blessed Lord's Day tomorrow. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.